1: So a couple of weeks ago, Kellen and I requested feedback regarding our Can Technology Save Us miniseries that we do within the podcast. And we received a lot of really good ideas and insights around maybe why people don't listen to that uh, series as often. Some people reached out and said, these are my favorite series. I love listening to those episodes. And other people reached out and said, I love listening to those episodes, but I was taken aback by the name. I thought it was going to be something else than what it ended up being. And other people said, I never listened to those episodes, pretty much because of what you titled them. And so we kind of came to this conclusion, thanks to all your help, that the idea of asking can technology save us it's so obvious and such a rhetorical and maybe even insincere question that if you're collapse aware you already know the answer to and so it makes listening to those episodes less desirable so moving forward um, probably not retroactively but moving forward when we talk about technology and its role in collapse we'll take out the question in the title it'll still be the basic same series but we'll add a title that more reflects the
0: idea of what the episode is. Yeah, and I think really, we're just grateful. It's awesome that we can throw a question out there like that. And we can get so many responses. And many of them weren't just surface level responses either. A lot of you that responded to that were very thoughtful and took the time to make it a meaningful response that gives us the kind of feedback we need to make the adjustments that will continue to make this podcast better and better.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Um, One thing that someone had mentioned, they said, based on the title, I thought that the episodes were going to be Just you guys bashing technology and just talking about how terrible it is. And they said, when I listened to it, I actually realized that you're also talking about the great parts of that technology and how it might grow and the positive impact that it can have. But the main point is that that technology isn't going to stop collapse or save us from collapse. But they were appreciative that we weren't completely disregarding technology as a whole. You know, I'd encourage if you skipped those episodes in the past, and especially if, if it was because of the title, I think there are a lot of really great things to learn from those episodes. I encourage you to go back and listen to them. If for nothing else, um, other than a way to talk to friends or family who bring up these technologies and say, no, we're fine, the future's fine because we've got electric vehicles or because we've got carbon capture or because we've got geoengineering or nuclear or whatever it is, you can take from those episodes the ability to say, yes, those technologies are amazing. And here's the great things about them, but here's why they won't fix everything. And so speaking of things that people who are unaware of collapse... Might say about collapse, it seems like one of the biggest things that people talk about is sea level rise. And it's also one of the biggest sort of defenses that maybe climate deniers or collapse deniers use is to say, like, climate change is going to cause sea level rise, and that's not that bad because. It's not even going to rise that much, and we've got tons of time until it happens. I feel like it's kind of the one thing that the media focuses on, or at least in the past that they focused on. And so it's the one thing that sort of the mainstream people understand, at least on a very surface level, is sea level rise. And we've talked in past episodes about how the effects of climate change go so much further Than just sea level rise. And we've spent several episodes going over what those consequences might be. But the focus of today's episode is on the impact of sea level rise. I think it's important to know how bad it's going to get. It's important to know the consequences of sea level rise. And I think one of the biggest takeaways is to understand that sea level rise is not a destination, but it's something that will continually get worse over time. And the consequences are more
0: than just a city that's suddenly underwater. I've mentioned before that I grew up hearing about climate change as kind of a crazy conspiracy. But even as it started to gain more acceptance, I still always heard about it from the standpoint of like ice caps will melt and we will lose polar bears and the water level will go up, which means we'll lose a lot of beaches. And so I do think, at least traditionally, sea level rise is the thing that's brought up when people talk about climate change. But I agree with what you're implying, which is that people don't fully understand what it really is, what it will look like and what the impacts will be.
1: Yeah, it's like people do this simple math in their head and they say, "Okay, uh, New York City is X number of feet above sea level. And so if in the year 2100 sea level has risen X amount, then New York City is or isn't underwater as an example. Right. And the reality is it's just not that simple. There's so much more that goes into sea level rise. And so the focus of this episode is not only to explain sort of the trajectory that we're on, the expected sea level rise over time, but also the consequences of sea level rise happening along the way. So to gain some perspective, I have some numbers here to show where we're at up to this point as far as how much the sea has risen. And then from there, we can take a look at some of the projections for sea level rise in the future. So since 1880, sea levels have risen 8 to 9 inches, which is 21 to 24 centimeters. In 2020, global sea level set a new record high at 3.6 inches above 1993 levels, which is 91.3 millimeters. And by the way, I'm just going off of the conversions that this uh, this site listed, which was climate.gov. They note that the rate of sea level rise is accelerating. In most of the 20th century, it was rising at a rate of 0.06 inches, which is 1.4 millimeters per year, to now where it's rising at a rate of 0.14 inches or 3.6 millimeters per year from 2006 to 2015. So we're talking about more than double the rate at which sea level is rising each year. High tide flooding in much of the U.S. uh, coastline is now 300 to more than 900 percent more frequent than it was just 50 years ago. And from a very sort of simplistic standpoint, it's projected that even if the world follows the lowest greenhouse gas pathway possible, sea levels will likely rise at least a foot, which is a third of a meter, by 2100, and that's above 2000 levels. So from 2000 to 2100, it would have raised a foot. But if we follow a pathway with high emissions, the worst case scenario is as much as 8.2 feet, which is two and a half meters above the 2000 levels. And the last number I'll mention here is that of those eight or nine inches that sea level has risen since 1880, a third of that, over a third of that, has come in just the last two and a half decades. So we're talking about 140 years worth of data, and more than a third of that sea level rise has come in just the last 25 years. So the rate at which it's rising is accelerating very rapidly. And I'm aware of just how impactful
0: and scary that is. But I understand where people are coming from when they say, oh, only however many centimeters or inches, that really doesn't sound that bad. I also think that even though it is increasing at a really rapid rate, like you said, it's not just a sudden event. You're not just all of a sudden hit with sea level rise. And so where we sometimes talk about big, intense natural disasters and the financial system imploding and political turmoil suddenly shooting through the roof and some of these things that can happen really quick, it's hard to know what kind of threat is really more dangerous. Would you rather know that you're going to occasionally have a heart attack or know that you've got a persistent cancer that is slowly killing you? And when that metaphor or analogy is applied to a collapse. We're having both happen at once. But I think it's easy to pay attention to the big dramatic things and not this underlying threat that just keeps increasing year after year.
1: Yeah. And another way to look at it with that analogy is that sea level rise is the plaque building up in your arteries slowly over time. It's imperceptible, right? You don't know that it's happening. You can't see it. And because it's so slow, but eventually there's just enough plaque to cause that massive heart attack. Right. And in this case, and we'll get to some of the consequences, again, of sea level rise later on in the episode. But while the sea levels are slowly rising in the background and accelerating the pace at which they're doing so, but imperceptible because the amount feels so low year over year. However, when the conditions are right, that increase in sea level rise is enough to cause serious catastrophes in different locations throughout the world. And one thing I want to mention with those numbers quickly is that sea level rise can be different in different places, which seems weird because it's all one massive body of water, so you'd think it would all increase at the same rate. But Climate.gov said this. It says, In some ocean basins, sea level has risen as much as 6 to 8 inches, 15 to 20 centimeters, since the start of the satellite record. Regional differences exist because of natural variability in the strength of winds and ocean currents, which influence how much and where the deeper layers of the ocean store heat. So as an example, coasts of the United States are hit harder than the average coast throughout the world when it comes to climate change because of some of those geographical differences. So there are two different ways that sea levels rise. One is that more water is simply being added to the ocean. And the second is that the volume of the ocean increases and the density of the ocean decreases because of an increase in temperature. So as the ocean warms, it expands. So in the first case, water is being added to the ocean by inland glaciers. Um, If you don't already know this, I think it's basic common knowledge, but I think there may be some misconceptions about this. Ice that is already in the ocean, so in the Arctic Circle, ice that's floating, massive ice sheets or icebergs, those are already displacing the amount of water that they're going to displace. So as they melt, they don't affect sea levels. There's all this talk about, you know, a blue ocean event and what's going to happen when all of the northern ice melts from the Arctic Ocean. And when it comes to sea level rise, while a blue ocean event will likely result in sea level rise, it's not because the ice that's being melted is being added to the oceans. However, if there's ice that's on land, so ice in Greenland, ice in Antarctica, when that ice melts, because it's on land, that water runs down into the ocean and adds to the overall amount of water in the ocean. There is an insanely massive amount of ice on Greenland and in Antarctica, so much so that if it were all to melt, they say that sea levels would rise 200 feet, which is something like, 60, approaching 70 meters of water. Now, that's not something that we as a species have to worry about uh, in the next several hundred years, likely. And I think, you know, in those time frames is probably the least of our problems as a society. But it is important to know that there is that much water there and that the rate at which that ice is melting is accelerating due to global warming. Again, from climate.gov, it says from the 1970s up through the last decade or so, Melting and heat expansion were contributing roughly equally to observed sea level rise, but the melting of mountain glaciers and ice sheets has accelerated. The decadal average loss from glaciers in the World Glacier Monitoring Service's reference network quintupled over the last few decades, from the equivalent of 6.7 inches of liquid water in the 1980s to 18 inches in the 1990s to 20 inches in the 2000s to 33 inches between 2010 and 2018. So in 1980, we went from losing the equivalent of 6.7 inches of water from glaciers to now 33 inches, which is just a huge increase in the amount that's being melted. It also says that ice loss from the Greenland ice sheet increased sevenfold, from 34 billion tons per year between 1992 and 2001 to 247 billion tons per year between 2012 and 2016. And in the Antarctic, ice loss is nearly quadrupled. So in just a few decades, we're quadrupling the amount that's being melted from these ice sheets. So they say that the amount of sea level rise due to melting in the present day is nearly twice the amount of sea level rise due to thermal expansion. But, and it was interesting to see how different sources sort of disputed over this fact, thermal expansion is something that I think is going to be increasingly Worrisome in the coming decades. And one of the biggest reasons is one that we talked about in a previous episode when we talked about a blue ocean event. So we talked about what was called the latent fusion of ice. And the idea behind that is basically that all of the heat energy in the ocean is directed towards the coldest part of the ocean, which is the poles, specifically the North Pole and the ice that's in the water. And there have been experiments done. You can do this yourself. If you place a pot of water and fill a top half with ice and put it over your stove and then stick a thermometer in the water, you'll notice that the temperature of the water increases very little and very slowly. And that's because all of the heat from the stove is going towards melting the ice. It doesn't actually warm up the water. But as soon as the ice melts, the temperature of the water rapidly increases because it takes way more energy to melt that ice than it does to heat up the water. And so the same is true of the oceans. Right now, there's a massive amount of heat energy going into the oceans from carbon dioxide as it absorbs it from the atmosphere and just from overall warming ambient temperatures. And that heat right now is being directed to the north, into the North Pole and the Arctic Ocean, into melting that ice. But the theory is that once that ice melts, the ocean itself will then start to warm up at a much more rapid pace. And as the ocean warms up, it expands. Warm water takes up more volume than cold water. And so that by itself is another form or another way that sea level rises. And so as there's those two competing forms of sea level rise, it will be really interesting, I think, over the next several decades to see
0: which one ends up having a bigger impact. I'm really glad you bring that up because that's not something I ever think of. I think about the additional water that's being added to the oceans from ice melt, but I don't think about that important factor of the water itself expanding as it warms up. So when we talk about sea levels rising and how that works, from a collapse perspective, it's really important for us to understand what impacts that's going to have. And I think the right place to start that part of the conversation is to discuss what areas of the world are going to be impacted most. And one global risk report that I came across says that 90% of all coastal areas will be affected to varying degrees. But one of the questions that often gets asked is how many people will be displaced? And in combing through the research that's out there, it was really interesting to see that a certain figure would be presented. And then a few years later, they would say, actually, new research shows that it's going to be much worse than that. And then a few years after that, again, the claim would be new research is showing it's going to be way worse than we thought.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you ran into that in your research because I did as well. Those numbers that I actually read in regards to the best and worst case scenario projections for the year 2100, they used to be about 25% less than the numbers I read. I mean, even just since 2012, those numbers have increased dramatically. And so there's no reason to expect that that's not going to continue into the future.
0: And maybe it's because I'm a little bit skeptical about everything, or maybe it's just because I'm naive. But I see that and I think, what is going on? Like, Why is it that hard to figure out what kind of an impact this is going to have? But one article that I came across did a really good job of describing the challenges in making these predictions. And in the article, it's a study that was done based on a two degree Celsius global average temperature increase. It doesn't take into account the possibility of Accelerated ice sheet melting. But as it was describing the research methodology, it talked about how difficult it really is to get an accurate picture of land topography. So, certain areas of the world have much more readily available airborne LiDAR data. But in other areas, they're relying on satellites that can cover certain latitude ranges. And that data has a higher margin of error, especially in places where it's really heavily vegetated. It's just more challenging than you would think to figure out exactly how high above sea level the land is across the globe. And then on top of that, they're trying to predict how many people will be affected, but that requires making predictions about population trends in every region of the world. And there's all sorts of unreliable data that's out there. There's different methods and timeframes for measuring population size and all sorts of struggles trying to match that with birth and death rates. And then from there, there's different ways that you can analyze the data, different baselines that you can compare to. So for example, from this article, it says this, and bear with me because it's in the language of an academic article, but it says population exposure to projected sea level or coastal flooding is most commonly expressed as the total estimated exposure below a particular water level or total exposure but is increasingly also presented as the difference in exposure above a contemporary baseline or marginal exposure. Each approach has complementary strengths and limitations, right? So if you put it in the context of warming, do you want to measure based on how many areas of the world will reach a certain temperature, or do you want to measure based on how many areas of the world will experience a certain rate of increase, right? There's so many ways that you can slice and dice the data. But all that being said, there's been a lot of research on this, and they've used very sophisticated models for analyzing the data. It's just getting a combined data set that can be trusted. And as that improves over time, we get a more accurate picture of what this will actually look like. Yeah. And it's interesting
1: that as they go through all these different revisions and they improve the technology, that getting a more accurate picture has proven to mean they're getting a more dire picture. It becomes more and more worst case scenario. And- I think it's a good sort of example of why we so often hear faster than expected. I think when it comes to science, we're making these great strides, but we're just still so far away from being able to create models that can include all of the different feedbacks, all of the different complexities in a way that can really give us a a complete picture. We've talked in the past about scientific reticence and not wanting to sound too alarmist. And so many of the predictions and projections come from sort of this mainstream idea, and anything that strays too far from that becomes too alarmist, and scientists sort of get shunned for that. But as the science itself and the technology improves, we get a more accurate picture into what's actually happening. And I think so far we're yet to see an example of where the outlook is better than had been previously thought. So I think that you explaining the different reasons why that technology is so hard to pin down, but how they're coming to a better place with it does help a lot to give sort of that picture of, of why faster than expected keeps happening.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you called that out. And speaking of faster than expected, this article that I keep referring to based their research on the assumption that we would hit two degrees Celsius global temperature increase above the baseline in the year 2100.
1: Which, by the way, I mean, we're not fortune tellers here, but it seems so painstakingly obvious that we are going to hit two degrees Celsius so much earlier than that. You know, the worst case scenarios and the ones that we seem to... Be tracking towards put us anywhere between three and like six degrees Celsius come 2100. We're likely to hit 1.5 within the next decade and two degrees likely by 2040. Personally, from the science I've read, it seems like the best case scenario for us is two degrees by 2050. So I think that's really important to take into consideration when you hear these types of projections.
0: Yeah. So think of that under almost just best case scenario, like very conservative Model In 2100, 200 million people around the world will live below the sea level line. So I think when we talk about 2100, we think of that as being so far away and in a sense it is a long ways away, but at the same time, the global average lifespan is 72.6 years. and so we're really only a little more than an average lifetime away from this.
1: And I think there it's important to reiterate what we said at the beginning, which is that sea level rise is not a destination it's not like January 1st of 2100 hits and all of a sudden 200 million people are displaced. The displacing of those people happens between now and then. And again, you mentioned how that's just assuming a two degrees Celsius increase by 2100, which is also insanely optimistic. So we're really looking at the consequences of this happening well within our own lifetimes, um, you know, in the coming several decades.
0: Yeah. So with all those caveats on just how conservative this model is 200 million people will live below the sea level line. 70% of those 200 million will be in Asia, specifically eight countries in Asia. We're talking about China, Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, and Japan. So those Asian countries will be the most affected At a smaller scale, but still we're talking about millions of people, the UK, Germany, Turkey, France, Italy, the Netherlands are all going to have millions of people below the sea level line. An additional 160 million will be affected by higher annual flooding due to ocean levels. To reiterate just how strongly this will impact these Asian countries, the top 20 cities when you rank in terms of population exposed to coastal flooding. And this is a little bit of a different model, but it's looking at the 2070s. You've got Calcutta and Mumbai in India. You've got Dhaka in Bangladesh, Guangzhou in China, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Shanghai in China, Bangkok in Thailand. You just read down the list and almost all of them are very heavily populated Asian cities. Miami and New York make their way onto that list. But then, of course, if you look at assets and loss of assets instead of population, you get Miami as number one, New Orleans, Virginia Beach. More American cities show up on the list simply because these are more highly developed cities.
1: Yeah, I think about the the cities that you just named, and I think about what would happen to the population of the people there. You know, it's not like those people are going to just sit in their homes and drown. They're going to leave. These very populous cities will begin to be abandoned at some point as the consequences of sea level rise get worse and worse. And so not only are we talking about problems with mass migration, which we've touched on at various points throughout the podcast, but we're also talking about the loss of economic activity in these areas. You know, if, if we think we're having issues with supply chains now, just imagine a world in which Shanghai doesn't have workers in its factories, right? And all these very populous Chinese cities, Thailand and its manufacturing, all of these places, just the internal chaos in their countries, the lack of exports. So many of these coastal cities that are set up specifically because of their supply chain advantage with sea level rise and the impact that will cause are going to experience severe economic downturns and loss of functionality.
0: Yeah, when we think of the effects of sea level rise, we usually think coastal land or cities being submerged or flooded, which is a major concern. I mean, we've got certain places like the Marshall Islands, the Maldives that could be completely wiped off the map. Apparently, Kiribati is negotiating to buy like 5,000 acres of land in neighboring Fiji so that they can move their 113,000 citizens if necessary. And already more than 90 U.S. coastal cities are experiencing chronic flooding. That's supposed to double by 2030. And we've got some cities that are actually sinking As sea level is rising, like Jakarta, which is a city with 9.6 million people is seeing a huge amount of sinking. The ground has sunk by two and a half meters in less than a decade. And part of that's due to just the weight of the city and all those people, but also what's happening with the groundwater and erosion. So we think about how this impacts people and those people being displaced, but think about what all of that water does to roads and railways ports, internet cables, you got farmland, you've got, you know, sanitation and drinking water pipelines and reservoirs. So even if your city doesn't completely disappear, we're talking about really significant adaptations that have to take place.
1: Yeah, on that point, you know, I just read an article that was posted to our collapse, I think it was today or yesterday, the flooding in Venice and how that city is basically going through an existential risk because of sea level rise. It was talking about how buildings are being eroded away at the foundation because of the salt water, which as sea levels rise, it means the water table rises as well. That salt water can can rise up from underneath the ground, right? And this is the very thing that we just saw happen in Florida with that building that collapsed, that apartment building that killed all of those people. That was sea level rise that did that. At least to some degree, because the water rose up from underneath, eroded away at the foundation to a point where it couldn't support the building and it collapsed. And since then, other buildings in that same area have been abandoned and basically condemned because the foundations have been checked and they're noticing that the same thing is happening. And it's invisible, right? The water never came up over the land and flooded this building, but because it was rising from down below and saturating the soil, in these specific instances, it's having a severe impact on infrastructure and on human life.
0: It's a fantastic point because a city doesn't necessarily need to be underwater for sea level rise to wreak havoc on infrastructure you think about what salt water does to steel and that's a huge concern on top of that like you talked about salt water creeping into the ground it can make its way into groundwater surface water it affects farmland as it makes its way into the groundwater
1: Yeah, I read in my research today that several instances in Miami of groundwater having been breached by saltwater intrusion, wells having to be completely abandoned, simply because as the groundwater decreases because we're using it up and saltwater rises, it basically eventually overtakes the groundwater and spoils it.
0: There are, as you can imagine, extreme social and economic repercussions from all these damages and all displacement. One thing I think people fail to realize is how much this increases extreme weather events. And you kind of alluded to this with our analogy before when you talked about that plaque building up in somebody's arteries. They don't really notice all along until it causes that massive heart attack. The risk of these major floods and storm surges increases dramatically. A storm surge happens when waters rise above their normal levels and they're pushed inward by the wind. So as we already get higher sea levels pushing more water inland, and then you get often these like hurricane related storm surges, it has a much more devastating impact on those coastal areas.
1: Yeah, the most devastating hurricanes that
0: you hear about aren't necessarily
1: the ones with extremely high winds, but they're the ones with the overwhelmingly large storm surges.
0: And it's hard to quantify exactly how that translates. But depending on the local topography of an area, a really small increase in sea level can translate into a huge increase in what they call the horizontal reach of a storm surge. And so the reach, the intensity, just the severity in general drastically increases as you increase the sea level.
1: So when you mention horizontal reach there, Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but basically you're saying that even though sea levels may have only risen an inch, a storm surge of the same intensity could now reach 10 more miles inland, for example, simply because of the topography of the area and the extra amount of water that's provided. So a tiny amount of sea level rise can result in a ton more damage. So it's not like, oh, we add an inch of water, so it's just a little bit taller and and my house gets flooded one inch more than it would have. It really can have very wide-reaching impacts.
0: Yeah. And again, depending on the exact landscape of whatever area you're talking about, those numbers might look very different, but the idea is spot on. Yeah. And this just goes back
1: to that idea of, you know, you look at a map of sea level rise projections in the future. I've done this before and I think, okay, at one meter of sea level rise, like what does Southern Florida look like? Right. And it's pretty bad. And, and there's all these areas that are flooded and you think, okay, how can Miami survive? But then you think, if that's what it looks like all the time at one meter rise, what does it look like when a hurricane or a high tide or storm surge affects the area? I don't think we're going to have to wait until a meter or two meters or three meters of sea level rise to see Miami devastated. We'll have to wait until the sea level rises just enough and the right storm comes along to completely inundate the area, destroy infrastructure. And maybe after that happens just a couple of times, you know, the area is unlivable.
0: And as you say that, it just makes me think about, you know, anecdotally how many increases we're seeing in flooding around the world. We've had a lot of severe weather events taking place we talked about this in our arc storm episode but several times this year I was watching videos of several different places around the globe where the streets were just flooded and you know vehicles are being washed down the street and so to think we've got all these coastal cities that with that little bit of additional sea rise are going to be put at such higher risk that's alarming you know with some of the infrastructure failure it's even been cited that they're can be a larger risk of large-scale cyber attacks as sea levels rise. Maybe more intuitive is that there's higher risk for man-made environmental disasters like oil spills or radioactive contamination. Clearly, there's going to be issues with mass migration and when you're talking about all the millions of people that'll be displaced i can't even imagine what that'll look like you've got biodiversity loss you know so as you talk about how certain areas will be affected one article made the claim it said even if we collectively manage to keep global temperatures from rising to two degrees celsius by 2050 at least 570 cities and some 800 million people will be exposed to rising seas and storm surges So I don't think we can overemphasize just how big of a threat this is. And a threat this large is scary no matter what. But when you think about how inevitable it is and how it's just creeping up and gradually kind of overtaking us, these risks are terrifying. And and we haven't even really discussed what this looks like in terms of catabolic collapse and how in the world, on top of everything else going on, can we afford to repair the damages and to move all these people But of course, any solution that could help mitigate all those impacts would also cost an incredible amount of money. So you might think, how do we adapt? What do we do to make it so that the impacts aren't quite so severe? Well, you can do really large scale engineering projects like build seawalls or surge barriers, install water pumps, create overflow chambers. Some places even have adopted these sponge city initiatives where they try to create the kind of reservoirs to be able to absorb all that additional water and treat it and hopefully use it during kind of the off season when when things aren't flooding so much and they have drought a lot of places are adopting land recovery or restoration initiatives so they're trying to again spend a lot of money to make wetlands and mangroves habitable places And there's a lot of adaptation initiatives in terms of just like urban design and the way that you design a city or the way that you design a building to be resilient. And if all of that fails, then you're trying to figure out how to move people and create the kind of infrastructure elsewhere that can adapt to having so many more people migrate from a risk area to a less risky area.
1: All of these ideas are really interesting ones. You know, you you think of a a mega city, you know, a a city with, with millions of people in it and the massive amounts of effort that it would take to relocate those people. And you just know that governments and businesses have all these sunk costs, pardon the pun there, in the cities. And so they're willing to try and take on these costs for all these different mitigation efforts and technologies to try and stop the water from coming in. And we're seeing that in cities like Venice, in the Netherlands with massive dikes. We're seeing that in New Orleans. We're seeing that in Miami. Some places in Texas are trying to institute or create these massive seawalls. And the costs are just astronomical. And so, Kellen, you mentioned two different costs here. One are costs to try and prevent the problem, and the other are the costs to rebuild or fix or repair infrastructure that gets damaged and either way you look at it those costs are going to be massive they already are massive and in a time of catabolic collapse when resources are precious when there's not enough money or labor or materials or maybe even time to prepare or to repair the infrastructure it seems like it does eventually lead to the other option that you mentioned which is abandonment and forcing those people to go elsewhere and building a new city for those people is not cheap either And if you can't build a new city, then those people flood the areas of cities that already exist and are a strain on the resources of those areas as well. Again, the whole problem of mass migration.
0: And I will say that on one hand, it's nice that sea level rise happens more gradually because if cities, states, nations prioritize their spending, there are things that can be done to prevent this kind of ongoing catastrophe. For example, the Netherlands, like you mentioned, They should be the hardest hit country in Europe. Something like 4 million people that would be directly impacted. But apparently they've got now one of the most effective flood control networks in the world. And so they're going to be in a much better situation than other parts of Europe and other parts of the world because they've prioritized those resources. But some of the research I came across was focused on which states in the US are seeing really dramatic increases in people building homes there while at the same time seeing dramatic increases in these problems and the risks, and nobody's doing anything to try to mitigate it or try to prevent it.
1: You know, regarding your comment about the Netherlands, I saw a comment in the article posted on Reddit about what's currently going on in Venice, and they were talking about the Netherlands, and one person made the statement that the Netherlands is extremely protected because of all of these dikes and the system they've got in place, and another person pointed out that while, yes, right now they're in a good place, it would be scary to live in a place like the Netherlands. And they likened it to basically living in a basin, like, like a bathtub, and water coming up over the sides of the outside of the bath and filling it. Basically this idea that like if the sea level itself continues to rise and the sea is at a higher elevation than you are, then the failing of one of those dikes, maybe due to a terrible storm or a terrorist attack or whatever it might be, would have terrible effects for all of the citizens living there. I think of New York City and the subway and the storms that we saw just in the last couple months there and in New Jersey with the storm surges and the massive amounts of rain that absolutely devastated apartments, basements, subways, and how there's not that much that can really be done to protect these megacities from those types of things. And I wonder how many times more in the future we'll see the subways of New York City flooded with water. But whatever way you look at it, sea level rise, again, is not a destination. It's something that's getting worse every day and combined with the worsening effects of climate change through more intense hurricanes and storms and higher tides is going to have a worsening impact on coastal regions over and over again, as well as the continual impacts it's having on infrastructure like our roadways, farms, freshwater and buildings. So when your uncle, the climate change denier, approaches you with sea level rise as a reason to not fear climate change, maybe you can show him this episode, but also let him know that maybe he's right. Sea level rise isn't the most imminent of all the climate change effects, but it is one that's going to continually worsen as time goes by.